Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Well, if you remain standing, take your Bibles, turn again this morning to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, as we uh, continue our study through this epistle. If you're joining us this morning for the first time, we, uh, what we do here at Calvary Chapel is take a book of the Bible, usually on Sunday mornings. It's a New Testament book, and uh, we just started a study in the book of James. This is our third study, actually, in the book of James. And so this morning, we're going to be in James chapter 1, looking at verses 5 through 8. If you'll follow along as I read our text, beginning now in James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, James, the the half-brother of our Lord and the pastor and leader of the church in Jerusalem, wrote this letter to Jewish believers who had fled to Judea and Samaria and then on to Jewish communities around the Mediterranean in response to the persecution that had broken out against the church in Jerusalem. And word got back to James that these Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ were experiencing severe trials and suffering, uh, which included rejection, persecution, poverty, adversity, affliction from without, conflicts within. And James, his pastoral heart went out to them. I mean, James loved these believers. Many of them had been under his pastoral care in Jerusalem. He loved them. He wanted to help them. He wanted them to be able to live out their faith in the crucible of life and in all their trials, and and he wanted to equip them to do this. And so he began his letter by addressing the issue of the Christian in trials. In verses 2 to 4, which we looked at last week, James dealt with the believer's proper response to trials. He said that when we meet trials of various kinds, we're to count it all joy which, as we learned last week, means that when trials come, we're to make a conscious, determined commitment to see the trials as a cause for joy. (laughs) You know, after teaching that last Sunday, I should have been prepared for Monday. (laughs) Knowing that when you teach on trials and having, you know, counting it all joy, you're going to get an opportunity to do that the very next day. Well, didn't really think about it, and... You know, God in his grace and mercy and his wisdom 
you know, brought a few trials, nothing major, just those, you know, minor inconveniences, those irritations, those delays that we all experience. And I wish I could say to you this morning, I passed it with flying colors, I counted it all joy. Uh, But in the midst of it, I realized that I wasn't counting it all joy. So I had to say, Lord, forgive me. And thank you for the reminder of how far short I fall. But James told us last week that we are to count trials all joy. Not trials, but the trials are to be a cause for joy. And the reason James said believers should respond with an attitude of joy when faced with various trials is that we know from God's word and from our own experience as well that trials are a means of testing through which God works to purify, strengthen, and perfect our faith to bring us to spiritual maturity, which is then demonstrated by likeness to Christ in every part of our character. And this is really the ultimate purpose for trials in this passage and in the book of James as a whole. God's goal in our lives is spiritual maturity. It's it's growth in Christ-likeness. But to be honest and realistic, it's not always easy to have this attitude of joy as much as we may want to before trials hit, when they hit, and throughout the duration of the trial. I mean, it all sounds so easy, but the truth is that sometimes things happen which we just don't understand. And sometimes life really hurts. And sometimes we feel like the dump truck of trials and hardship has backed up and dumped its entire load on us. As one man said, when you are in the thick of such a tangle of circumstances, there is no way it can seem to be anything other than a purposeless mess. There is no stretch of imagination by which it even begins to look like a stepping stone to maturity. And that's true, isn't it? When you're in the midst of a trial, it's hard to understand what's going on and and to believe at that moment that it's for your benefit. I mean, it all seems unreal and, and idealistic. And no doubt some of James' original hearers uh, we're thinking, oh, it's easy for, for James you know, to be the, the wise pastor assuring the hurting that they're being brought to maturity and just to hang in there. I mean, preachers are supposed to say things like that. But he doesn't really know what we're going through. I mean, count it all joy? Are you kidding me? I mean, it's a whole lot easier to, to say to someone else, count it all joy, when you're not the one right in the middle of a trial. But you see, James understood very well the nature of trials. Remember, he was pastoring the church in Jerusalem, a church that was stricken by poverty, severe persecution. He knew well the nature of trials. And he knew that having an attitude of joy in the midst of trials and and not rebelling against the experience is much easier to say and much easier to write and much easier to think about than it is to actually do. He knew that it takes perspective. He knew that it requires wisdom. But some of James' original hearers and some of us here today, you know, may be thinking, wisdom? That's not what I want. You know, when I'm in a trial, uh, I want to get out of it. 
That's what I want. That's what I need. I need to get out of it. I need to find a way of, of controlling it and stopping it. And James says, no. What you need is wisdom in it. And if we have any hope of having an attitude of joy and, and persevering under trials the way James instructs us to, it requires divine wisdom. It requires God's wisdom. The ability to see life as God intends and to act accordingly. And the reason we feel confused and frustrated and have sometimes made a mess of the way we handle our trials is that we've lacked wisdom. I mean, we need God's wisdom in order to approach our trials properly. And that's what James speaks of in verses 5 through 8. He's going to tell us how to be wise. And there's nothing more important for us than we become brothers and sisters in Christ who are wise. And James is going to tell us how. Isn't that amazing? I mean, think of it. You came to church on a Sunday morning and you learned how to become wise. <laughs> Remember King Solomon? At the very beginning of his reign, God appeared to Solomon in a dream and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. In other words, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Ask for whatever you want, Solomon. And what did Solomon say? He said, give me wisdom. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? Of all the things Solomon could have asked for, he asked for wisdom. And we're told that it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom, and because that is what he asked for, God also gave Solomon many things that he had not asked for. Let me ask you something. What would you ask for if God said to you this morning, ask me for whatever you want? Ask me for whatever you want. I mean, as you think about the future, the rest of your life and all the choices and decisions you have to make, what would you ask for? Solomon asked for wisdom. I mean, can you see the importance of a life characterized by divine wisdom? James is going to instruct us how we can be wise. But first... It's very important for us to define the wisdom that James is speaking of. And perhaps it would be helpful to first say what this wisdom is not. This wisdom is not the earthly wisdom that men gain primarily from experience. For example, a person shows wisdom when he or she uh, doesn't touch a hot stove. And most of us have gained that little bit of wisdom through the painful experience of actually touching a hot stove at one time or another in our lives. And we gain the desire then never to do it again. And of course, the longer we live, the more hot stove experiences we encounter. And so older people are generally wiser in this sense because of their life experience. But this earthly wisdom, though it is good, is not the wisdom James speaks of here. This wisdom is not common sense. 
Many Christians speak of sanctified common sense, and by that they mean the common sense that we should be developing as Christians, and there's certainly some truth in this. But there are a lot of people who have no knowledge of God whatsoever, and they have no desire to know God, and yet they exercise a great amount of common sense. Though that doesn't seem to be the case in Washington, D.C. I mean, that's for sure. Now, this is not to suggest that we are not to use common sense. Certainly, uh, we should utilize all of the sensibilities that God has given us naturally and, and what we have learned through experience. But the wisdom James speaks of far exceeds common sense. I mean, common sense does not lead us to choose joy in the middle of trials. This wisdom is not a synonym for being intelligent. We don't equate this wisdom with going to school and getting a Ph.D. I mean, having a doctorate is not the sign of wisdom, though many a Ph.D. would like us to think it is. The wisdom James speaks of is more than intelligence and academic prowess. Some of the world's most intelligent people have lacked wisdom. For example, the great atomic physicist Albert Einstein wrote this. In their struggle for the ethical good, teachers of religion must have the stature to give up the doctrine of a personal God. But the Word of God declares, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Einstein was obviously extremely intelligent, but he was not wise. This wisdom is not the mere acquisition of knowledge. We may say about someone, well, they really know their Bible. And so far, what, what we have described is not a, uh, a what, so far what we have described is a knowledgeable person, but not necessarily a wise person. I mean, certainly Christians must have knowledge of the Bible. But being wise is more than simply having knowledge. A person can know the Bible from front to back, have great knowledge about it, knowledge of where this and and that verse is found, and still not be wise. A person might memorize the entire Bible and yet act like a fool. So the wisdom James speaks of is not the earthly wisdom gained by experience. It's not mere common sense. It is not intelligence and academic prowess, nor is it the acquisition of knowledge. Well, then what is it? Well, first of all, this wisdom belongs to God. And it's one of his divine communicable attributes. The writer of Proverbs wrote in in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the scriptures teach that this wisdom that we're speaking of is rooted in the fear or the reverence of God. It begins with a reverence for God, and this presupposes a relationship with God. And for the Christian, this is being personally connected with Christ. And Jesus Christ is the perfect expression of the wisdom of God. And if we know Him, if we have a personal relationship with Him, I mean, we receive and are changed by His wisdom. And it begins at at our conversion, and there's more as we grow and mature in Christ. And and God has even more wisdom to give us 
But it doesn't come automatically, but we'll talk more about that a little later. But no man will ever know true wisdom until he first knows Jesus Christ, who is, Paul said, the wisdom of God. Because the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Biblical wisdom is something that man desperately needs, but it is something that the unconverted man never has. Because it is given only to those who belong to Christ. So what is this wisdom James is speaking about? This this wisdom is practical. It will affect the way we live. It's been called skill in living. It is practical insight from God that enables us to take biblical truth, spiritual truth, and then to apply it in the details of our everyday life or to a specific problem or issue. Rather than just theoretical understanding, biblical wisdom focuses on practical living and obedience to God's revealed will. You see, the fool in Proverbs is not the man who is mentally deficient but rather the man who is morally deficient. He ignores God's commandments and lives according to his own wisdom, to human wisdom. Where the truly wise man, according to Scripture, lives in obedience to God. In Job 28 we read, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. One man called wisdom the skill to bear trial. And his idea of wisdom implies something that helps a believer to both stand and take action in trials and and in life's demands. Another man writes that wisdom is the God-given insight into our human circumstances and situations that enables a man to see God's will coupled with a wholehearted desire to see it done. He said, it is the ability to look at our circumstances from a divine perspective, to see God at work, and thus grasping the will of God for action. So we could explain wisdom like this. Wisdom is the God-given ability to see our circumstances from His perspective, to stand firm, trusting in the Lord, and it's the practical insight then to take appropriate action. And in the context of James 1, it is the wisdom that we need to see our trials from God's perspective so that we may properly respond to them with joy, being steadfast so that we may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And certainly we can and we must ask God for wisdom in all the matters of life that we face, but the context here is focused on asking God for the wisdom we need to properly respond to trials. We need wisdom from God so that when trials hit, instead of asking, why is this happening to me? We ask, how can I understand this trial from your perspective, Lord? We ask, how can I navigate through this storm in such a way as to bring you glory? Lord, give me wisdom so I know how best to respond in this trial so that it will be a means of of further growth and maturity. Warren Wearsby shared a a personal experience. 
He had an associate, a gifted secretary, who was going through uh, some great trials. She had had a stroke. Her husband had gone blind. And then he had to be taken to the hospital where uh, they were sure that he was going to die. And Warren Wiersbe said, I saw her in church one Sunday and assured her that I was praying for her. What are you asking God to do, she asked. And her question startled me. I'm asking God to help you and and strengthen you, I replied. I appreciate that, she said, but pray this one more thing. Pray that I'll have the wisdom not to waste all of this. She knew the meaning of James 1.5. She wanted wisdom to know how to respond to the trial properly, biblically, so it was not a wasted opportunity for spiritual growth. And so by wisdom, James means the God-given ability to see our circumstances, here specifically our trials, from his perspective, to stand firm trusting in the Lord, and the practical insight to take appropriate actions to respond to respond properly and live obediently in the midst of our trials for our growth and maturity and also for the glory of God. And so when we're hit with trial after trial in this life, as God purifies, strengthens, and perfects our faith to bring us to maturity, when God brings these things in our lives and and we're struggling to get a grip on what's going on and and why it, it is all happening, you know, when, we feel, when all we feel is pain and it's grievous for the moment, as Peter said, and we're wondering what to do and how to respond, the first thing we need to do is know that the answer is not available in the earthly realm. What we need is wisdom. Not earthly wisdom, but the wisdom from above. And so what do we do? Well, look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The word if does not mean James thinks there's any question as to whether we need wisdom. The way this is written in in the original means that it, it is assumed to be true from the author's perspective. So the if is not really iffy. James assumes that that everyone is lacking when it comes to wisdom. And there are no individual exceptions to this need given here. Because there are no individual exceptions to this need. The degree of the need may vary. But all believers have a need for this wisdom. That includes all of us, beginning with me. No one is sufficient in and of himself to face the trials of life. And we we must recognize this. Because the first step in gaining wisdom is recognizing our need for it. It's the fool who thinks he doesn't need any wisdom. It's the wise man who recognizes his need for it. But the fact of the matter is, by nature, man is very independent. He wants to solve his own problems, make his own decisions, because pride is endemic to the human heart. In America, it's the spirit of you know, rugged individualism, the, the self-made man, the, the person who seems to have it all together by himself. Again, it's pride. 
And one reason that God sends trials is to humble us so that we'll look to him. Remember the proud Laodicean church? The church that thought they had it all together? The church that thought they were rich and had no needs, but God said, no, you are actually poor, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That was God's perspective. To obtain wisdom from above, we must first humbly recognize our need for wisdom, which we do not possess within ourselves. And secondly, we must ask for it. The kind of wisdom James calls for comes only from God. And so he says now, look back at the verse, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him, what? Ask God. If any of you, You know, God's wisdom is available to all of his children without exception. But we must ask to receive. And we must ask God. For as Proverbs 2.6 says, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, which you all do, let him ask God. And listen, James is not merely giving personal advice here. This is not simply a suggestion to be considered, but rather this is a divine command to be obeyed. And therefore, our calling on the Lord for wisdom is not an option. It's mandatory. James is giving us a command. And the tense of this indicates this is a continuous command. And so we would understand this to say, let him keep on asking. If any of God's children, if any of us lacks wisdom, and we all do, then we're to keep on asking God. So the obvious inference is that God has wisdom to give. And James wants to get across to us that divine wisdom is available to the Christian as he faces life's trials. We simply need to ask our Heavenly Father for it. And the thrust of James' language in verse 5 is that God is just waiting for us to ask. I mean, what what a tremendous encouragement that is. The problem of lacking wisdom is not on God's part. No, not at all. I mean, he's more than willing and ready to give us wisdom. The problem is on our end. Because Christians often try to manage trials by human reasoning, you know, trusting in their own rational resources. And part of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of the Christian is to wean us away from trusting in our own resources and to make us look away from ourselves and to God. You know, asking Him for the wisdom that we lack. Look back at the verse, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And then James says, who gives? Ask God who gives. And in the original, the phrase God who gives uh, graphically emphasizes giving as a characteristic of God. And it reads literally, let him ask the constantly giving God. So James labels the Lord the giving God. And when God gives, he gives according to his nature. He is a a giving God. That is the theme of of the most well-known verse in in all of the Bible. 
For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He gave his only son. The New Testament is full of references to the giving of God. Paul says he's given the very greatest gift of all to us, his only son. And so think of it. And with him, will he not also graciously give us all things? Well, of course he will. One man said, God is like a pitcher tilted toward his children, just waiting to pour wisdom over the trial-parched landscape of their lives, if they will but ask. And he is the God who gives. And every day when we come to him, he is always the God who gives and gives and gives again. But look what else James says. God God is not only the God who gives, James says he gives generously. Generously. Solomon asked for wisdom. God gave him that plus what he had not asked for, both riches and honor. The prodigal son asked, you know, make me like one of your hired men, like one of your servants. But the father gave him the best robe, a ring, shoes, all the, all the emblems of sonship, and then he gave him a feast. The debtor of Matthew 18 asked the king for patience so that he could pay him back what he owed, and, and the king did much more than that. He took pity on him and, and canceled the debt and let him go. I mean, those are pictures of the generosity of a God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. I mean, every good and perfect gift any man has known comes to us from God. I mean, Paul speaks about God's giving in terms of far more abundantly than all that we could ask or even think. And when Paul describes how we should give, he tells a Christian in Rome, let the one who contributes do so in generosity. And why would he say that? Because God gives like that every day to all who belong to him. He is the God who gives. He's the God who gives generously. And this word translated generously is found only here in the New Testament. And scholars love to debate as to what the best English word to translate it is. Well, its root is the word single or simple. And that word is used in the context of having a single eye or of being single-minded. In other words, God is absolutely undivided and unwavering in his intention to simply give wisdom to whoever asks for it and to do so generously. And God wants us to know that, that he is utterly committed to making us wise. So we must ask him for wisdom. And we must never stop asking him for wisdom. It is the Lord's loving desire to generously give wisdom to all of his children. I think that is one of the most beautiful, uh, encouraging promises in all of Scripture. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. God doesn't play favorites. You know, God doesn't have his special group over here or his special people in in this corner. God doesn't play favorites. God is generous to all his children. But notice what else James says. God gives generously to all without reproach or without finding fault. In context, the meaning is that God does not give according to our worthiness or gratitude 
nor does he withhold blessing from us because we ask too much or too often. No, his giving is governed by his nature, not ours. And so he gives without reproach. In other words, God will give us wisdom without putting us down or demeaning us. He will never, or we will never be turned away. We can always come boldly before the throne of grace. I mean, we, we will never hear from him, you shouldn't have come to me again for help. I mean, how many times uh, have I had to help you now? You know, what an undeserving person you are. No, God doesn't deal with us like that. As one commentator noted, it is easy to wear out our human benefactors after they have repeatedly given to us, but not so with God. We will never encounter divine irritation like, I gave you a head, why don't you use it? Or, <laughs> or what did you do with what I most recently gave you? Have you ever been thankful? Rather, his response is, I'm so glad you asked. And here it comes. James assures us here that God will not chide or, or scold us for asking and for asking often. Because our Heavenly Father gives without reproach. He just simply gives. And He loves to do so. And one of the great things about God is that He knows what we're made of. He knows we are but dust. He knows how very weak we are. He knows how difficult life is for us. He understands why we struggle the way that we do. He doesn't find fault with us for being what we are. He's glad for us to come to him as often as we are willing to come. And the more we come, the more we ask, the more he pours out his wisdom upon us so that even when the most difficult trials come upon us, we're able to consider it pure joy. Because we know that our Father is going to provide us with the wisdom to enable us to respond properly so we will benefit from it and, and continue to move toward His purpose for us, that, that purpose of maturity and, and completeness in our life. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. It will be given to him, it says. If we lack wisdom, God will certainly give it to us. So what we have here is the simple promise that God will grant what we ask when we ask for his wisdom. But this promise of answered prayer does not mean that God is some kind of a cosmic vending machine which we put in a, a prayer and out comes whatever we ask or whatever we want. It does not mean that at all. And as John said, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to what? His will, he hears us. The promise here in James is that God will grant what we ask when we ask for his wisdom in our trials, because that is his will. He wants to give us wisdom for our trials if we will simply ask him. But notice James did not say when the answer would be given. Only that it would be. And so the promise is clear. God will give the answer 
but he will give it in his own way and at the time he chooses. Now, I don't doubt for a moment that most of us pray when we face trials. In fact, that's probably when we pray most, right? But the question James puts before us has to do with what are we praying for? I mean, we, we pray for the trial to be lifted and, and to end, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But has it occurred to us to pray for wisdom in the trial? Have we asked God to help us understand how to respond in such a way that we don't waste the opportunity to grow and, and bring glory to Him and leave a positive impression on those around us? What are we asking for when we pray in the midst of a trial? Because James tells us we should be asking for wisdom. He tells us we're to ask God for wisdom, and he also tells us how we're to ask. We're to ask in faith. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Well, what does it mean to ask in faith? Well, when the Bible speaks of praying in faith, it does not mean having faith in prayer. It does not mean having faith in a proposition. It means rather having faith in a person, God himself. Believing prayer is the prayer of a Christian who is utterly convinced of the power, love, grace, mercy, and faithfulness of God. Believing prayer takes his stand upon the very character of God. I mean, we must believe in the immense, all-knowing, all-powerful, holy God of Scripture. And this means the greater our knowledge of God, the, the more we know him as he's revealed in the Bible, the more certain our faith is going to be. And to put it more intimately, the more, the more we know him, the more we know of, of the character and nature of God, the more we know the things God loves and, and the things God hates, the, the more our prayers are going to be according to his will. And it is only the prayer that is according to his will that he has promised to answer. In terms of our text, if we're in a trial, believing prayer is asking God for wisdom, truly believing God will give it to us because of who he is and what he has promised in his word. It is as simple as that. Our prayer must be in faith. Then James has to add this. He adds, without doubting. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. The word doubting means to hesitate. It means to pause or hold back in uncertainty or unwillingness. It, it suggests a vacillating, you know, wavering between two decisions or opinions. It pictures a divided mind being torn in two directions. The person is vacillating between the, the competing desires within him. So really, it's a, it's a battle of the mind, a battle with your own self. I mean, you want, you want the wisdom of God, but at the same time, you prefer to do what seems reasonable to you. 
It's a battle between your reason, your logic, and the divine guidance that comes from God. It's the undecidedness as to whether you're going to take your own wisdom or, or the wisdom of God as you face the trials and, and circumstances of life. In other words, this is the person who's not sure he really wants to know God's wisdom because he isn't fully committed to submitting to it. And so it would be nice to know God's wisdom for his situation, but before he commits to obeying it, he needs to find out whether he likes it or not. In other words, he's shopping for the answers that, that fit what he wants to do. It's like the person that goes from counselor to counselor or pastor to pastor. Though they know what the biblical truth is, they just keep bouncing around hoping to find someone who's going to tell them what they want to hear so they can do what they really want to do. It's shopping for answers that fit what we want to do. You know, if God's wisdom sounds good, well, we'll follow that. But if worldly wisdom, you know, my own wisdom and reasoning sounds better, well, then we'll follow that. But this doubting brings instability. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So the idea here is, is not the, the storm-driven, uh, crashing breakers. It's not the idea here. Rather, this speaks of just the rising and falling, just the heaving of the waves out at sea as they just, you know, go this way and that way and back and forth and, and up and down, driven by the wind. The picture that James draws is of a cork bobbing in the waves, being, being carried one direction and then the next minute being carried in another. And James compares the doubting believer to the rising and falling and, and heaving of the seas, up one minute and down the next, being tossed back and forth. As one man said, the doubter is completely out of control. He is on a wild ride to nowhere. He's like the man who gets on a horse and rides off in two directions. <laughs> And this kind of instability is evidence of spiritual immaturity. In fact, Paul used a similar idea in Ephesians 4 for the, spirit, uh, the spiritually immature when he said this, No longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The immaturity and instability go together. And what does James say about this person? He says, for that person, the doubter, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Literally, it's a two-souled man. And scholars think that James actually invented this word. It's only used twice, here and then in chapter 4, and it hasn't been found in any classical Greek literature. He's literally a two-souled man, but what does that mean? Well, where there should be one thought, one goal, one attitude, we find two competing thoughts. 
A double-minded person is one who can't decide whether they're going to take their own wisdom or, or, or the wisdom of God. And that person, James says, is unstable in all of his ways, and he should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, one commentator who happens to have a study Bible said that this is speaking of a hypocrite and an unbeliever, but I would have to respectfully disagree, as do other commentators. Because James is still speaking to those he calls my brothers. In other words, brothers and sisters in Christ. He hasn't changed who he's talking to. He is speaking to believers. So that person is a believer. He's received eternal life. He's indwelt by the Spirit. But his doubting, his unstable, vacillating life means that he's going to get no wisdom to help him handle his troubles. As one man said, he will not ride his trials onward and upward to spiritual maturity. What a tragic waste, he said. You see, you can't ask for wisdom and then decide that you're going to do things on your own or do things your own way instead. That's double-mindedness. It's like the woman who told her pastor that she had prayed about marrying her unbelieving fiancé. And she had a peace about it. I mean, that's a whole other message in itself. But I mean, but her pastor told her that she had sinned by praying about this situation. Because God has clearly revealed his will about marrying unbelievers. But she didn't want to know God's will. She only wanted to do her will. She was a double-minded woman, unstable in all of her ways. You cannot ask for wisdom and then decide that you're going to do things your own way instead. That is double-mindedness. If you really trust God, you recognize that His way is always best before you even know what His way is. And when you ask Him for wisdom with this confidence, then, or when, and then when you ask Him with a believing heart, with a heart you know, ready to obey, God will give you wisdom. And in fact, you receive it in abundance because He gives generously. As James said, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. And so this, this brings up the question, is James suggesting here that if a person has any doubts, God will not answer his prayer? So is the Lord demanding perfect faith? Is he insisting that we never doubt, never waver? Well, I don't believe so, and here's why. If our faith had to be perfect, few, if any of us, would ever receive anything. Because we all doubt. We all have moments, times, even seasons of doubt. I'm not saying we doubt God's existence. We have moments of doubt in this Christian life. And if you don't think you do, that's just evidence of serious pride in your life. We all have doubts. Is 
This phrase, without doubting, is not referring to a new faith or a weak faith or a faltering faith. If it was, none of us would ever have our prayers answered. But we must all honestly admit our doubts to the Lord. And we can do so knowing that Jesus was always very tender with doubters. He was patient with John the Baptist when he asked if Jesus was indeed the Messiah or should they look for another. He was patient with doubting Thomas, wasn't he? He showed mercy to the distraught father in Mark 9 who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And then there's Abraham and Moses who were great men of God, but they were not perfect in their faith, not by any stretch of the imagination. They both had moments of doubt, but over the years, they displayed a consistent faith in God. And that is what God wants from us. He wants us to trust him consistently. I mean, he he knows us. He, He knows we cannot obey perfectly. He knows that we will never be doubtless in this life. But you see, it's not perfection, but direction that's important. God wants us to trust him consistently over the long haul. And then we have to be willing, and we have to humbly acknowledge our doubts and and, and questions, and then be willing to trust him with a whole heart. And so in mentioning the double-minded man, James is not referring to someone who's wrestling with doubt, but rather someone who has two minds, someone with a divided loyalty. Someone really who thinks as as highly of their own uh, logic and reason and wisdom as they they do of God's. And actually they're, they're putting themselves above God. He is not teaching that only perfect, doubtless, confident prayers will be answered. Rather, what he is saying is that we had better not ask for wisdom from God unless we are also willing to follow the wisdom that he provides. Because God will not cast his pearls before swine. He will not reveal wisdom to those who are not committed to follow it. We must ask for the wisdom we need, confident that God has the power to do what he has promised and that the Holy Spirit will enable and empower us to obey and to live it out. Listen, we can never remove the last shred of doubt. (laughs) Instead of trying to to rid ourselves of all doubt, instead uh, instead we should acknowledge it to God, then focus on a wholehearted commitment to him because he promises to give wisdom to those who ask for it. But you know, one issue we haven't addressed is how do we receive this wisdom? How do we receive this wisdom? Does God's wisdom just, you know, come suddenly uh, out of the sky like a lightning bolt, a, a revelation or some kind of impression, you know, just come from out of nowhere? Is that, is that what we're talking about here? In what way does God deliver this wisdom? Answer? through the scriptures. 
Understanding what God is doing in our trials and suffering is all laid out in the Word of God. It comes directly from God and is revealed in His Word. It is there that we discover the divine perspective on the issues of life. Wisdom especially centers in the knowledge of Christ, who, Paul said, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As Peter said, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And so the more we steep ourselves in the word of God, the more uh, capacity we have to act wisely in the face of decisions, crisis, and adversity. And this is similar to a tea bag in boiling water. The longer it steeps, the more its flavor permeates the water. But remember, this study of the Word is more than just gathering knowledge. Wisdom is related to both the knowledge and, and then the right use of that knowledge. The use of that knowledge in practical living. And wisdom is the God-given ability to apply the insights, the commands, and and directions of the Word to life and daily living. It's, It's knowing how to apply biblical truth to particular situations in life, like trials. And the ability to do this comes through the work of the Spirit, shaping our understanding of the Word of God. And Paul gives us a helpful illustration of this in Philippians 3.15 where he says, let those of of us who are mature think this way or, or have this attitude. He's speaking of an attitude of pressing on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. So he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And he said, if in anything you think otherwise, or you have a different attitude, he said, God will reveal that also to you. You see, God the Spirit constantly works in our lives to expose our thinking to the Word, to direct our thoughts toward the truth, and to help us know the mind of God in a given situation. And so when we pray asking God for wisdom, we're going to be directed right back to the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit will begin to give us insight into the Word and to expose the, the whole of our thoughts and life to Scripture. So, If you're not spending consistent time learning God's Word, you're not going to have the capacity to act wisely in the face of trials, decisions, and adversities. So you mean this wisdom doesn't just come by hearing a voice? No. If you want to hear God's voice, read the Bible out loud. (laughs) You know, every heresy that's ever come into the church has come in because somebody thought they heard from God. God gives his wisdom to us by his spirit through his word. It is the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. God also uh, can give wisdom when He providentially works in our trials through circumstances and the people who touch our lives. In other words, it may be the instruction of a pastor or the instruction of an older, wiser friend. 
It may be the way God providentially orders a particular circumstance in your life so that you say, okay, I've been praying about this and, and now I see, I see what's going on here. You know, this is God's hand. I, I see, you know, what has happened, and, and now I understand how I'm supposed to respond. God reveals his wisdom to us primarily by his spirit through his word, but he also works in our trials providentially, you know, in, in the world around us through the circumstances and the people who touch our lives. But none of this is automatic. None of this is automatic. Because James tells us when we're in a trial, if we lack wisdom, which we all do, the way to receive it is how? How? What did he say? If any of you lacks wisdom, what are you supposed to do? Ask God. We have to ask God. We have to pray. We have to ask God, believing that he will give it. We must first ask God, who is the God who continuously gives. And he is waiting for us to ask. And the Lord is, is pleased to give wisdom and, and he gives it generously to all without reproach, without finding fault. He is ready and willing to give all of the wisdom that we need if we will only ask him believing. Are you going through some trial right now? And if you're not, you will be soon, <laughs> right? They are part and parcel of uh, our lives in this world. But that's okay as long as we understand that they have great spiritual value, that God is using them in our lives, that he has a purpose. You know, we, we, I think too many Christians... Uh, have the mistaken idea that every trial is a sign of God's displeasure. It is not. Certainly, uh, God, as our loving Father, will discipline us, and he can use trials to do that. But you're the only one uh, who probably would know if you're being disciplined by the Lord because of you're, you're living in some sin that you just refuse to give up. If you're doing that, you can expect his discipline. But there are just trials that we experience just as human beings, not even as Christians, just as human beings living in this, in this world. Things that are common to all people. And there are trials specific to being a Christian in this world. And when they come, don't think that it's always God's displeasure. Most of the time, it probably is not. Rather, view it as what it is. It's our loving Heavenly Father using every circumstance, every trial to purify, refine, you know, strengthen our faith. He's working in them to make us more and more like Christ. That's his goal. And Paul says in Romans 8, we have been predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. That's his purpose. That's his goal. It should be our goal. And so when trials come, we need to recognize, recognize them for what they are. It's a trial. It's painful. Peter tells us they're, they're generally only temporary, only for a little while, though there are those who 
because of uh, physical disability or uh, you know accident, illness, disease, can have a trial that'll last uh, their entire life here on earth. But but all things considered, that is but a short time. But trials are for a little while, if necessary. Peter says, and who determines if they're necessary? God. They're grievous, but they're working a, a, a great work in us, purifying our faith, which is much more precious than gold. I mean, we talk about trials, don't get bummed and discouraged. Rather, rejoice, be glad, be encouraged. Because these things aren't just random acts of fate. They don't just happen. God is using them in our lives. He's ordained them. The very least, he's allowed them. And he's using them to make us more and more like Christ. And so rather than fight them, we need to cooperate with him, recognizing what they are. And when the trial comes, we can have an attitude of joy because we know it's of great spiritual value. God is using it to mature us. And then we ask God for wisdom. We ask God for wisdom to know how to live in this trial, to know what we should do, how we should respond, what action do we take so that we don't waste this opportunity So this opportunity is, in fact, an opportunity for spiritual growth and maturity for the glory of God. So if you're going through a trial right now, ask God for wisdom. It's the first thing you should do. Ask God for wisdom, believing, and you'll receive it. Because as the Apostle John has promised, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He gives us what we ask. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Pray.